Today's scripture reading, uh, so we're going through 1 John. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 4, I mean 7 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, this is a word of the Lord. Give me a minute. The dog's in here, and he's trying to get out of my room. Let me let him out. All right, I'm back. Uh, so we have been going through a series on First uh, John, and, you know, we're getting close to the end. You know what usually happens to me as we go through a series? You know, the beginning, um, I have a lot of energy, and I have a lot of steam, but it's like... Uh, when we get through it, like I'm just kind of like waiting to get to the end. Uh, but you know, this chapter is actually uh, really encouraging, and in some ways, it's like it's like the heart of what we've been talking about in First John. And if you remember, the reason why I decided to go through this letter is because John emphasizes the importance of love in the Christian life. And you know, uh, always in the back of my mind was just everything that's going on in society, from uh, like racial injustice to a lot of the you know political discord that's happening. And uh, I think there's a great absence of love and there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of vitriol. Um, but I think uh, one of the things that at least uh, Christians have and the Christian church has is a heart of love. And if anybody should be loving, it should be believers because we have received a love that is so uh, great in Christ. Now, I mentioned a book that a couple weeks ago about how do you, you know, just approaching spiritual life and approaching ministry, and this book was called The Cat and the Toaster. I thought it was a very helpful way to frame things. And basically, the author says, you know, we shouldn't approach a spiritual life in this uh, mechanical way as we would like a toaster. So when a toaster is broken, we diagnose the problem and we see which part in the toaster is not working. And then we try to fix that part. And it's kind of like this very linear way of thinking. But rather, we should approach a spiritual life as like this interconnected organism, like a cat. And when the entire organism is not healthy, then it will necessarily have an impact on everything else. And so we have to nurse the entire organism back to health. And I think John seems to be showing us that there is this entire organic system when it comes to the life of faith. And therefore, our ability to love uh, is not something that operates in a vacuum. It's not like a broken component uh, within ourselves, but it's actually related to all other things. And according to John, it's related to whether we are organically connected to God. And so John's consistent exhortation is to abide in God, as Jesus uh, also says in John 15, when he gives us illustration of the vine and the branches. And it's only when the branches are organically connected to this source of life, this vine, that the branches will be healthy and will be able to bear fruit, in particular, the fruit of love. And likewise, it's only when we abide in God that we will be able to uh, love one another. So as John tries to give this community the assurance that, hey guys, you really do know God, 
He does so by pointing out to the evidence of their love for one another. And he says, look at the fruit in your lives because they are evidence that you actually do know God and that you are walking in the light. Now, when we think about love, if you were to ask people to define love, uh, what would people say? Uh, maybe they would say love is uh, th this positive feeling that you have inside or love is a sincere commitment to a person or love is an action, a uh, positive action that you uh, do for a person. And these responses are right to a degree, but they aren't really complete on their own. How does John define love here? He doesn't actually give a definition, but John defines love as a person. And so in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And you see, he could have said God has loved, or he could have said God has exemplified love, but he doesn't say that. Rather, what he says is he personifies love when he says God is love, which tells us that God and love are so intertwined that the attribute of love and God's being are one and the same. Now, in theology, there's something called uh, the simplicity of God, which doesn't mean what it sounds like. It's not saying that God is simple, but it just means that God's attribute and his being are one and the same. So, for example, God doesn't have wisdom, but he is wisdom. God doesn't know truth, but he is truth. God doesn't uh, have life, but he is life. His being and his living coincide and are one in him. And that's actually what part of what makes God distinct from created beings. Human beings, we can only derive these attributes from God because we are created in his image, but God is the origin and the source of these attributes. And the implication of this means uh, if you want to know love, then the best way to know love is actually to know God because God is love himself. Now, that's not to say that uh, someone cannot know anything about love if they don't know God, because uh, obviously they can. But it does mean you cannot know the fullness of love as one might know the fullness of a person without knowing God, because God is love. And therefore, apart from knowing God, you are left with a love that is only derivative, which doesn't make it inauthentic, but it does make it incomplete. I think in everyday life, we all have a sense that the original is usually better than the copy or the derivative, right? I think there's a lot of examples of this. You can hear a song live from the original band or musician, and that's usually better than hearing the song from a cover band at one of those Caribbean resorts. Uh, eating at an, uh, the original restaurant is usually better than eating at the other locations after it's been franchised. And in academia, it's always better to analyze the primary source material rather than the secondary source material. This is generally true in many areas of life. And it's also true about love. You could experience something true and genuine about love through parental relationships, through uh, spousal relationships, romantic relationships, friendship relationships. But without knowing God in a personal way, all these forms of love will always be derivative. Now, sometimes derivatives can be wrong. But usually that's not the problem. Most of the time, the problem is that derivatives are missing something and are therefore incomplete. Uh, when we used to live in Hoboken, there was this Cuban restaurant um, that Jen and I uh, used to like. And, you know, they opened a second location. And so we went to the second location and it wasn't as good as the original location. And it was kind of, we were kind of like, I, I wonder, I don't know why it's not as good. It's just not as good. The original location was kind of like small. It didn't have enough seats. It was a bit of like a kind of a hole in the wall kind of place. The second location was bigger, 
It was in a nicer location. It had more seating. But for whatever reason, when we went to this second location, even though it was the same owner, uh, it wasn't as good as the original. Something was just missing in the food or something was just missing in the experience. And we couldn't figure out what it was, but it just was not the same as the original. And I think that's usually the problem with our understanding of love when we only know love through its derivative forms rather than knowing love by knowing God. Now, I had a counseling professor and his name was David Powelson, and he passed away last year. But I went back to read an article that I remember I read a long time ago when I was in seminary, uh, an article he wrote about God's love. And in this article, he talks about how we can oftentimes lose something when we talk about God's love uh, through uh, using secular language. And he uses the example of unconditional love. So his discipline of study was in psychology, and he says, that the concept of unconditional love actually arose within humanistic psychology. And I, he said the technical term, I guess, in psychology is unconditional positive regard. And so I guess this idea trickled down into popular culture and eventually Christians took that term and said, God's love is like that. And therefore it came to mean that God accepts you as you are. You can relax and you don't have to work towards maturity and character and obedience and growing in holiness because God is always going to smile upon you. And you know, that's probably how a lot of Christians think about God's love, which explains why there are some holes in our Christian faith compared to other generations when it comes to the discipline and the work of growing in holiness. Uh, but Pallison, uh, he says God's love is actually much better than unconditional love. It's not that God's acceptance of you is this blanket acceptance, but it's more that his acceptance of you was an active choice that he made. God doesn't accept you for who you are, but he accepts you on the basis of who Jesus is. God chose to love you and accept you when he could have justly condemned you. And not only that, but God's love takes this active interest in who you are and who you should be. So God's love is interested in your repentance. God's love is interested in your trans transformation by the work of the Spirit. And so Palestine, he says, if you receive blanket acceptance, you need no repentance. You just accept it. It fills you without humbling you. It relaxes you without upsetting you about yourself or thrilling you about Christ. It lets you relax without reckoning with the anguish of Jesus on the cross. It is easy and undemanding. It does not insist on or work at changing you. It deceives you about both God and yourself. Now, of course, there are aspects of unconditional love that resembles God's love, but it is still a derivative and therefore at its worst, it's a distortion of love and at its best, it's an incomplete derivative of the original. So John says, if anyone does not love, uh, if anyone does not love, that person does not know God because God is love. Now, John also, he brings up an interesting problem that uh, any child who is listening here is keenly aware of. He says in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God. My oldest child has pointed this out, you know, whenever we talk about God and she will say something like, yeah, but I can't see God. And that's true. God is spirit, and therefore, we do not see him with our physical eyes. So how do we know God's love? And the answer is God manifests himself and his love in two ways. Uh, in verses 9 to 10, John writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The first way God revealed his love to us is through Jesus. And there's a lot, there's so much to unpack uh, in these uh, two verses and so many different angles we could take on this. But uh, I'm going to just try to be somewhat broad in general uh, by talking about the incarnation of Jesus. You know, when God sent Jesus into the world, that also meant Jesus took on flesh through his incarnation and he identified with humanity. Uh, if you remember from previous sermons, there's a sectarian group of people and they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And John takes this denial so seriously that he calls these people who denied that Jesus came in the flesh, he calls them antichrists. Now, why is the incarnation of Jesus so important? Why is it such a non-negotiable, so to speak? And I want to approach this question from the perspective of love. Now, if you think about the deepest kind of love one can have for another person, even on a human level, what is it? Uh, there's a theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and he says, it's the ability to bind your heart to another so much so that their good actually becomes your good. So, for example, a parent might have a depth of love for their child to the degree that the parent's happiness is bound up with the child's happiness. If the child is struggling or unhappy, and I, I guess I don't mean unhappy in the sense of they're throwing a tantrum because they didn't get a snack, uh, but I mean like a deep sense of unhappiness, like they, they're having trouble uh, with friends or they're having trouble with self-esteem or anything like that, then the parent won't be as happy because the bond between parent and child is so strong. Uh, the good of the goodness and the happiness of the child is bound up in the happiness of the parent. Uh, not all spousal relationships are like this. And my guess is most marriages probably don't start out this way. But one way you can measure whether you are growing as husband and wife is to ask yourself how much of your happiness is bound up in the happiness of your spouse. Uh, are you just worried about your own happiness or does it distress you if your spouse is unhappy? And if so, I think that's a deep sign. That's a sign of a deep bond of unity. And that's what Jonathan Edwards is talking about when he talks about love. And so from that perspective, we can say that God had a great deal of love, at least to Israel. In Isaiah 63, God says, in the affliction of Israel, uh, I was afflicted, right? When they rebelled, they grieved his Holy Spirit. That, that kind of language illustrates that the bond God had with his people uh, was so strong, which subsequently shows us that God's love for his people was strong. But what happened with Israel? Israel repeatedly grieved God with their disregard for him, with their adulterous behavior in their idolatry. And so what would God do in response um, you know, sometimes it's judgment, but ultimately, uh, to use the language of poker, rather than folding his cards, God does it very opposite. He goes all in. That's what the incarnation is all about. God went all in when he sent his only son into the world. When Jesus became human, he bound himself to us in such a way that would have been unthinkable to people in the ancient world. Uh, you know, even in the early church, it was unthinkable. Uh, modern people, we might have trouble with, you know, believing in the, the divinity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus. Uh, but most modern people can at least acknowledge that Jesus was an actual human being who walked this earth. But, you know, in the days of the early church, the people had the opposite problem. They could accept that Jesus was divine, but they could not 
accept the humanity of Jesus, like the, the people uh, in the sect that broke away from this community. They had problems with it, uh, I think partially because the idea that God would become human in an act of humiliation was something that was so outrageous and unthinkable. But that's what God did. Why? To manifest his love for us. You see, he bound himself to us so much so that our affliction became his affliction, our struggle became his struggle, our problem became his problem. And that's what Hebrews 4 talks about when it says, in Jesus, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In Jesus, we have a high priest who has been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet was without sin. Jesus would bind himself to the human, to humanity, to the human experience to such a degree that he would actually be able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He would bind himself to us to such a degree that he would stand in our place before God's judgment seat. And so verse 10 tells us when it says that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is the second time this word came up in First John, but the word propitiation basically means the appeasing of God's wrath towards us. So when Jesus went to the cross, he stood in our place and received the wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And that's the reason David Powelson says unconditional love doesn't quite get it right when it refers to God's love. It's too weak. It's too incomplete because God's love is actually much better than that. God accepts us, not on the basis of who we are. God accepts us because Jesus went all in and stood in our place and lost so that we might live. And given the cosmic stakes of what was lost for Jesus and what was gain for us, is there any greater love than this? You know, uh, I'm part of like a book club that we meet during the week or every other week. And uh, this past week we talked about preaching and, uh, you know, one of them, uh, one of the other pastors was like, Hey, let's uh, exchange sermons and let's kind of critique one another's sermons. Uh, it's probably in moments like this right, right now where I feel the inadequacies of my preaching because if I were a better preacher uh, talking about God's love, we should all be crying at this moment, right? We should all be crying in amazement that God manifested his love to us through his son. Yeah, friends, it's really that amazing. It's really that great. And, um, you know, I do, I do pray and hope that the Holy Spirit would impress the magnitude and the wonder of God's love upon us, uh, especially in the moments where we feel uh, the weakest and the moments where we feel uh, the lowest, because it really has the power to lift us up. Now, that's the first way God manifests his love to us. What's the second way? Uh, the second way uh, we find in verse 12. So John points out that no one has ever seen God, and if so, then how do people know the reality of God? And his answer is this. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? Uh, I think the translation is a little bit confusing, but it basically means that God's love is not complete until the world sees it revealed in the life of a Christian. God initiated love because he first loved us, but he wants to complete love through us. And when we don't love one another, then God's love is not complete, and subsequently, the world will not see God 
that, that's a humbling statement. That's a little bit of a scary statement, but it really, really matters whether uh, the people of God are a people of love. Because what John says is, based on our love for one another, God's love is completed through us. Now, Jesus says something similar, I think, in John 17. And I haven't said this ex explicitly yet, but the context of the command to love one another is actually amongst Jesus' disciples. It's within the church. And so when Jesus' disciples love one another the way Jesus loved them, that's how the world will know the love of God. And I'm sure uh, some people don't find Christianity very compelling because they can't get around it intellectually. But I actually think most people probably don't find it as compelling because they don't always see uh, the love, uh, love manifested amongst Jesus' disciples. Conversely, even though I think Christianity is intellectually compelling, I don't think that's ultimately why people find it compelling. Ultimately, I think people's hearts are touched by something genuine about love, about the love that is being expressed. And the reason their hearts are touched is because they are able to see and to know something about the love of God through the love that believers uh, show and live out. Uh, in America right now, there seem to be a lot of narratives around power and even the critique on certain traditions of Christianity have to do with something related to power and the corruption of certain traditions and churches have to do with uh, the corruption of power. And if you think about power, what is it that makes power uh, seem so irresistible? Why is power such a great temptation? And Henry Nouwen has this great quote and he says this, Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. I think that's, that's probably one of the greatest quotes I've read in this past year. Let me read it again. Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems e easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. You see, a lot of the problems that we see in the world and in the church seem to come down to this, doesn't it? Whether it's uh, the problem of racism or misogyny, people who are in these positions of power and influence use their power as a substitute for the hard task of love. Uh, when it happens within a community of believers, it's even worse because God has manifested his love to us in Jesus. And so we of all people should be able to love because we know the very source of love in God. And that's what it means to complete the love of God when we love one another. When we do, Jesus says, the world will know and see God's love. And that will be a compelling reason to receive Jesus and to follow him. And I think God has been steadily shaking and dismantling uh, traditional structures of power because they haven't been built on love. And you know, it could be God's judgment or it could be God is sanctifying us in order to prepare us for a period of renewal and revival. Uh, I don't know, I hope it's the latter, um, but if it is, I think there is no greater time uh, where we should have greater urgency to obey the command to love one another because if uh, I think the world needs anything right now the one thing the world needs is the love of God and praise be to God that he has not withheld that from us but he freely gives it to us um, but also the call of the church is to manifest that love and our love for one another let's pray
God, we thank you for Jesus. And uh, God, you are love. You are the source of love. And you manifested that love to us. And uh, you know, sometimes our hearts are maybe too dull and uh, maybe too preoccupied with other things to really receive it and to rejoice in it, um, to allow it to um, lift us up. But God, um, there is such great power in your love. Uh, in our most discouraged moments, um, when we feel like failures, when we feel like we've lost, when we feel um, like we are inadequate, remind us that it was the love that you've shown us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that really does lift us up. God, uh, I suspect that many of us, we try to generate love within ourselves and we try to maybe will ourselves to be more loving. And um, uh, I pray, God, that you would give us the desire to love by opening our eyes more and more to your love. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to receive the love that you have sh shown and given so freely. And in that, uh, our hearts would be changed. In that, uh, I guess our taste buds would change. In that, we would um, desire, have the desire to give of ourselves as Christ gave to us. That we would have the desire to be uncomfortable. That we would have the desire to um, make sacrifices uh, to love others. And that it wouldn't be drudgery, but it would actually be true joy because you have filled us with the, the joy of the love of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.